Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 51 and 52, English Standard Version. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, English Standard Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today we are continuing our conversation about the battle in the Valley of Ella between David and Goliath with founder of Crystal Sea Books and author R.D. Fierro. In recent episodes, we've been probing the details of the story to see whether there are historical and archaeological records that help confirm the story's historicity. And today, we want to take a look at a particularly amazing archaeological find that might be the most incredible piece of evidence ever found that pertains to the story. But as we frequently do, we want to start off on a lighter note by using one of Crystal Sea's Life Lessons with a Laugh series on David and Goliath. R.D., is there anything you want to mention first? Well, today I want to call the folks' attention to a remarkable archaeological find that's the subject of a 2018 article from a website called PatternsOfEvidence.com. And the title of the article is David Battles Goliath. And it's a particularly interesting article for anyone who uh, likes to look closely at the background of Bible stories and examine the intersection of archaeology, the Bible, and contemporary thinking. We'll put a link to the article itself uh, in the written notes that accompany the podcast version of this show. But for people who want to find it on their own, the website that makes the article available is PatternsOfEvidence.com, and they should search for a title of David Battles Goliath. We won't have all the time we need today to go over everything that's contained in the article, but there are just a couple of the more particularly interesting parts of the article that we do want to highlight Not only are they interesting and applicable to the story of David and Goliath, but they help us to start to illustrate the kind of lenses through which people view Scripture. People come at Scripture from a variety of different angles. The kind of approach that's illustrated in the article helps us see a couple of those different approaches. Lots to get to then, but let's start with a little humor. We had some good feedback on the pizza delivery lesson from David's series, so we've decided to give it an encore airing. So here's Artie and Jerry discussing how bread and cheese became important ingredients in the Hebrews' defeat of the Philistines. Hi, 
I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books. Here today with that brilliant flash of fluorescent luminescence. Uh, Jerry. Right on, J-Light. Jerry. To me, you're the bright light that flings the night from the dawn you spawn. Hey, fellow Crystal Sea sailors. Today, J-Light and I are here to unfurl some more spinnakers of biblical truth. So let's uncoil some more lessons from the story of David and go kiss the grass. I think you mean Goliath. I'm not sure. That will work for the less imaginative. Look, there's a lot about the story most people either don't know or at least don't think about very much. But you do? Exactamundo, J-Light. Sometimes I have a slightly different perspective on things. No doubt about that. For instance... Did you know that the whole reason David was down at the Valley of Elah and heard the humongous heifer harassing the Hebrew army was because David's father had sent him there on a pizza delivery run? Pizza ready! Elah Valley run again? Oh, and David's the guy that brings your pizza pie. There's a story. That Goliath would fall like a fat sausage ball for God's glory. So give thanks on your knees for the bread and the cheese from inventory. That God's willing to show and he wants us to know his amore. A pizza run? Dude. They didn't have pizza in Israel in those days. Uh, Well, J-Light, I'm not an expert on 11th century B.C. Hebrew Epicureanism and gastronomy, but hey, just about every culture around the world has thrown bread and cheese together at some point. And that's what the Bible says David's father sent to David's three oldest brothers who were hanging with the Hebrew army. Bread and cheese. Uh, Not sure about the tomato sauce. Oh, that's okay. Lots of people just like their pizza with cheese and garlic and maybe some spinach. Once again, Jay Light, your interest in all things culinary gives you superior insight into life and learning. I do like to keep up. With my meals, that is. Well, you'd think David's brothers would have been delighted to get their dad's care package and give David props for bringing it. But oh no. After David sees Gorgonzola breath clomping around... He casually asks if there's a reward for taking the big clown down for the count. I mean, the kid's just curious. And who wouldn't be? But his oldest brother, Eliab, jumps down his throat like he had used his razor to trim the tails on a family of skunks. Ooh, that's the dangerous end of those varmints. Uh, true dat, J-Light. But let's leave that visual alone. David is just trying to scope out the situation before he makes his announcement that he'll take out Goliath since no one else will. Well, once Saul, who is the king, hears that David has more spine than a battalion of porcupines, he sends for David, and the two of them start parlaying over the best strategy to bring a foul in to the foul-breathed fellow from Gath. Well, it's likely then that David meets Jonathan, one of the king's sons. Maybe David and Jonathan found out they both like white pizza. Possibly, Jay Light. Can't be sure about that. But we do know that David and Jonathan both have at least one thing in common. They both put their trust in the Lord. 
The Bible says that Jonathan and his armor bearer once took down over 20 Philistines by themselves after Jonathan was persuaded that the Lord wanted him to take the hill that the Philistines were guarding. Hmm, sounds like Jonathan was like David, always willing to go forward knowing that the Lord had their back. Well said, J. Light. Jonathan and David were definitely cut from the same cloth, and it wasn't the kind that had to be washed with the delicates. I have ruined more than one pair of my own delicates on the wrong cycle. Uh, keep up, J. Light. Oh, yeah, yeah. Focus. Anyway, the Bible says that after David defeated the smack-talking large barge, that David and Jonathan became true friends and brothers, a friendship that lasted the rest of their lives and was instrumental in David ultimately becoming king of Israel. Several times, Jonathan alerted David that Saul, who had turned against David out of jealousy, was coming for him, enabling David to escape. So Jonathan proved to be more of a brother to David than his biological sib, Eliab. It's called fellowship, J. Light. Hanging with other people who read the Bible and are willing to pray regularly with you will encourage you to hold on to the good word in a bad world. Fellowship is one of the ways God helps his people fight the good fight when the odds look like they're on the wrong side of the valley. I got you, R.G. Uh, it's R.D. Sure, for the less imaginative. So David left home with bread and cheese and came home with a brother from another mother. Uh, right, J. Light. The Lord has a big family and there's room in it for everyone, no matter what variety of pizza they prefer. I got it. You may like deep dish, but that doesn't mean you can't love someone who prefers thin and crispy. Again, Jerilicious, you have triple skipped a slick stone across that wide pond of biblical truth. The secret is to turn your head sideways, but not so far your brains fall out. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea rigging crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous. But our boss is. I must confess, I like the musical parody in that episode, especially that God's willing to show and he wants us to know his amore, his love. That's so true. And one of the ways God has revealed his love to us is through his book, the Bible. Absolutely. After the fall, God could have just dismissed or ignored mankind, but thankfully he didn't. God launched a plan of redemption, but that plan of redemption was going to unfold over many, many centuries. And if God had just let the plan unfold without giving us any information or any revelation along the way, we would have been pretty short of guidance. But again, thankfully, God didn't do that. While he was unfolding his plan of redemption, he didn't leave his people without the guidance that they would need to both come to him and to understand the world in which they were living. God began giving progressive revelations to his people by means of the prophets, and those revelations were ultimately assembled into a book that we know as the Bible. It's interesting that the word Bible actually traces its roots through Latin and Greek words, and those Latin and Greek words simply mean book. In a very real sense, the Bible is just a book, but of course it's not just any ordinary book. It's a book that contains the special revelation of an almighty transcendent God. Of course, the fact that the Bible may be the Word of God does not answer the question of how we approach the Bible. In other words, what does the Bible mean to us individually, personally, even for us as a society or a culture? But at the heart of the question about how we come to the Bible 
is the question about whether the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. And that's why we like to take some time on Anchored by Truth to look into the specific details of some of the better-known Bible stories to see whether or not there is evidentiary basis to invest trust in those stories, in those mini-histories, if you will. Of course, there are many parts of the Bible that should not be interpreted in a wooden literal sense. The metaphors, the allegories, much of the poetry. But the portions of the Bible that are recording history should be reliable as history. So that's a part of what we continue to study and discuss. And there's a lot of available research and empirical evidence that allows us to have confidence in the historicity of the Bible's historical reporting. Yes. And as I mentioned earlier today, I want to take a look at a couple of particularly tantalizing bits of evidence that have come to light only recently. Actually, a couple of the most tantalizing bits of this evidence come from a site that overlooks the Valley of Elah, which of course is the location where the fight between David and Goliath took place. This evidence comes from excavations that are done at the site of an ancient fortress city that today is called Kirbet Kiafa. The excavators of that site think that the site that they're excavating is likely the biblical city of Sharem, in part because it's only about seven miles from Goliath's hometown of Gath. Remember that in our opening scriptures today, we heard that the Israelites pursued the defeated Philistine army to Gath and Ekron, which were both Philistine cities, from Sharem. And part of the reason that the excavators think that this is Sharem is because Sharem in Hebrew means two gates. And in excavating the site, the explorers have found that there are two gates at Kirbet Kiafa. Well, that makes sense in a lot of ways. The Valley of Ella was near the boundary between the Philistine territory and the Israelite territory, so it would make sense to put a fortified city there. You could position such a city so that it would overlook the most likely avenue of attack from an enemy. In this case, the valley that leads from Philistine cities of Gath and Ekron into the Israeli territory. So who was doing the excavation, and what are some of their finds? The excavations at Kirbet Kiafa have been led by two Israeli archaeologists, Yosef Garfinkel, who's of Hebrew University, and Sar Ganor of the Israeli Antiquities Authority. Garfinkel has proposed that the excavation they're doing leads back to the Iron Age. So he has proposed an Iron Age date for the fortifications at Kirbet Kiafa, and of course that fits in very precisely with the biblical time frame for the fight between the Philistines and Saul's army. Saul, of course, was the king of Israel and the leader of the Hebrew army. So, and one of the most interesting finds that they've made at this particular site, Kirbet Kiafa, was that they have found a jar with the name Eshbal on it. That's E-S-H-B-A-A-L, Eshbal. One of the reasons that's so interesting is that Eshbal was the name of one of Saul's four sons. So it's kind of interesting to think that there's a jar or a jug found at the site of this ancient fortress city that has the name of one of Saul's four sons. In part, it's interesting because uh, it's very likely that Saul would have had his sons with him at the time of the battle. Interesting. Even if it wasn't a jar that belonged specifically to Saul's son, it means that there's evidence that the name was in use among the Hebrews at that point in history. Also, the fact that the excavators think that Kirbet Kiafa 
was a fortress means that at that point in the history of Israel, Saul had begun to create a defensive network for his kingdom, which in turn indicates a high degree of centralized control and a more sophisticated Hebrew society that some archaeologists believe existed at the time. What else? Well, the most interesting and potentially revolutionary find was a potsherd that contained some of the oldest Semitic writing that had ever been found in Israel. And this particular potsherd, this particular piece of pottery, has been labeled the Kiafa Ostrakon. And what's very fascinating about it is that it contains five lines of fairly legible text. As it's pretty easy to imagine, portions of the lines of the text on the pottery are faded, but that's what you would expect after it had been buried for a few thousand years. But one of the interesting things is that much of the writing is amazingly legible. And in the article that we've been mentioning that forms part of the basis for our discussion today, there's a picture of the Ostrakhan in the article. So people who want to see that potsherd for themselves can go to the article that we've been citing and look and see a picture of it. But reading and translating ancient writing is usually pretty challenging, isn't it? I mean, not only do the letters tend to fade or become discolored, but ancient Hebrew writing wasn't like today's English. They used vowel points instead of having separate letters for vowels, and they did not put spaces between words, which is conventional today. All that is very true. That simply means that there will always be a certain amount of uncertainty or imprecision when it comes to translating the text that is contained on items like the ostracon. And scholars, of course, when they're looking at those texts, will approach it from different angles and will try to see what words might fit into the lines of text that would make sense. So the attempts by various scholars have come up with varying interpretations, but most of the variations include the use of Hebrew words, ancient Semitic words for God, or word for judge, word for servant, and word for king or kingdom. So most of the translations come up with those kinds of words as part of the interpretation. But there's one particular scholar whose name is Brian E. Corless, who's an honorary research associate at Massey University in Australia. And Mr. Corless is a recognized expert on ancient Northwest Semitic scripts. And Mr. Corless has come up with an absolutely astounding possibility for the translation of the text that's on the Kiafa Ostracon. Which is... Well, I'm going to read this translation, and again, it's a tentative translation because all the caveats that you mentioned above absolutely apply. The letters, even though they are generally pretty clear, they're not as legible as some of us might prefer, and translations on these kinds of ancient lines of text are notoriously difficult anyway. So with all those caveats in place, here's what Brian Corliss thinks that he sees as the lines of text on this Kiafa Ostracon. And I'm just reading now his translation. Line 1. Anak, you have cursed against the servant of God. Line 2. The servant of God has judged you with the judgments of Yahoo. Line 3. Goliath, you are dead. David is master forever. Line 4. I arise and we raise up the foundation of my kingdom. Line 5. I raise up the people of my servant for his virtuous acts. Wow, that would be truly incredible. A pottery remnant that actually contains the names of David and Goliath that is from a site that is near the place the fight occurred. It's amazing to think about something like that appearing. 
Precisely. It would be amazing. It would be so amazing that my general observation is that the more amazing a particular archaeological find seems to be, the more I think it's really incumbent on the community of faith to be cautious in citing it as proof of something. I mean, of course, it would be lovely to be sure that we had an archaeological artifact that contained almost a detailed record of what we see happened in the biblical text for the fight between David and Goliath. And this artifact could, in fact, be that. This artifact might, in fact, be an artifact that contains the names of David and Goliath at a location very near where the fight between the two combatants occurred. That would just be an amazing, astounding, it might be one of the most revolutionary archaeological finds of all time. But of course, I want to emphasize that there's not universal agreement that Coralesse has translated those five lines of text correctly. But even if Coralesse hasn't gotten every line right, or even if those five lines of texts don't specifically relate to the fight between David and Goliath, they're very important for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Kiafa Ostrakhan demonstrates that the Hebrews were making written records and that writing was commonplace in making those records at a time which is considerably before where some scholars had earlier dated the Hebrews' use of writing or at least the commonplace availability of Hebrew writing. So finding lines of text out there in a remote outpost would indicate that the use of writing was widespread in the early Iron Age within Israel, and that alone is a significant statement. The second thing is that finding the kind of fortification city that the excavators think they have found at Kirbit Kiafa indicates that even at that point in the embryonic Hebrew kingdom, Saul had begun to exercise a certain degree of centralized control over the borders of his nation. So that indicates a more robust and centralized Hebrew kingdom, Israeli kingdom, than was thought by many scholars, again, to exist at that time. Many of the people know that there was a well-organized, fairly sophisticated, in both military apparatus and culture, that that culture existed in the Iron Age in Israel. But a lot of the scholars believed before the excavations at Kirbid Kiafa that that kind of culture, society, military apparatus did not exist until after the time of Saul and David, whereas these excavations at Kirbit Kiafa indicate that already at the time of Saul, which would have been before David became king, that already there was a stronger centralized Hebrew kingdom beginning to develop, and that kingdom was starting to develop fairly sophisticated defensive fortifications for the protection of the kingdom. You think that how we approach these kinds of new archaeological finds or revelations is an important element of how we approach Scripture in general? Yes, I do. Unfortunately, we live in a society that is increasingly either biblically ill-informed at best or biblically ignorant at worst. And as such, it's more common these days to run into people whose basic attitude toward the Bible, if they think about it at all, is that the Bible can't be true and isn't true unless there's extra-biblical evidence that confirms it. And oftentimes this is true even if the person that we're talking to isn't an ardent atheist or outright hostile to the Bible. In other words, in our culture today, the Bible is often viewed with a certain degree of skepticism or even suspicion or even an ingrained disbelief of its contents. I actually have run into many Christians today who no longer hold to the classic doctrines that view the Bible as an inspired, inerrant word of God. 
And I'm sure in part that's because they're immersed in a culture that has rejected a previously shared embrace of transcendent truth. So I think that when we see these kinds of major, potentially revolutionary archaeological finds, we need to think about them, and I think we need to be aware of them. But I think that we need to be overly cautious about making too strong a claim for their importance. It's not that we shouldn't be able to use them as evidence. We just need to make sure that they're viewed in the proper light. Well, skepticism or criticism of the Bible also seems to be the stock in trade of much of what gets aired on television or in the news these days. Just about every time there's a Christian holiday, Christmas, Easter, etc., you see cable shows on science or history channels that purport to tell us the real story behind what used to be a commonly accepted Bible-based idea or story. I've lost track of how many times I've seen specials that tell me now we're going to hear the, quote, real truth about Jesus or Moses or David for that matter. You believe that it is an overstatement to say things like, archaeology proves the Bible is true, or science proves such and such about the Bible. But that doesn't mean that understanding relevant archaeological, historical, or scientific material isn't helpful in demonstrating that we do not accept the Bible on blind faith. Exactly. Some people would say the Bible isn't true unless facts outside the Bible will confirm the Bible. But they don't take that same approach to other books of antiquity, such as histories that were written by, say, Josephus or Herodotus or Tacitus or other ancient historians. But as believers, we can have an extra level of confidence in the Bible's inspiration and infallibility because we have an internal witness of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would lead us all into all truth. Absolutely, and amen. Only God can change the human heart, but when He does so, He will give us confirmation that He has, in fact, changed our hearts. And we can be very grateful to Him for that. Sounds like a great opportunity for a prayer. Since it's so important to study the Bible, how about if today we pray for any of our listeners who have just begun a new season of Bible study and reflection? Prayer at the Start of Bible Study Gracious and Heavenly Father, You are the Lord of all wisdom and understanding. We look to You and Your Word for knowledge of the truth. We come to you to continue our study of the Bible that we might more clearly understand truth and be able to pass it along to others. Lord, many have had busy and trying days at home or at work. Many have faced difficulties and problems, and many will confront those same issues tomorrow. For now, let us leave the cares and troubles of the world behind and help us to concentrate on you and the subject before us. Remind us that you are constantly mindful of the tribulations your children face in this world, and you are fully able to handle them all. Therefore, grant us the peace and freedom to focus on what you have for us to learn. Some are not feeling well or with family who are sick. Some are weary and in need of rest. Help us all to feel refreshed as we study and share with one another, and grant healing to those who are ill. Also, Father, please bless all our family members and be the complete supply for all their needs. Guide the discussions, Father. Open our hearts and minds to your word. 
Where the passages are difficult, give us the increased understanding that can only come from you. Let each person gain new insights into your greatness and sovereignty. Like Mary at Jesus' feet, let us learn with eagerness and enthusiasm. We celebrate that you have provided the Bible to us because you wanted us to know more about you and through that knowledge, gain a deeper relationship. Give us wisdom. Let us be blessed by good fellowship and camaraderie and enjoy the company of those you have called together. We are grateful that you have put us among others who serve as a source of encouragement and accountability. We are especially grateful that you sent Christ to save us from our sins. We worship and honor your Son, and we pray continuously in his name. Amen. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to finish up our study of David and Goliath, at least for now. We want to circle back around and ensure that listeners see how the story of David and Goliath, and all the stories in the Bible for that matter, are integral parts of God's revelation, of His love and plan for salvation. We hope you'll be with us then, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where We're not famous, but our boss is.